Okay, good morning everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridion. Uh, depending upon our time, we may be able to finish the, this opening section, which of course is on the ministry, <coughs> with the plan being to head into the second part on the Word and Sacraments, which really is the remainder of the text in bulk, beginning on page 39. So we will pick up on page 35 after our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So, not to lose the forest for the trees, the entire reason that Christ institutes his office and calls faithful men into that office is for the delivery of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. That is to say that if we are justified by grace, through faith, apart from our works, solely on account of Christ, that message needs to be proclaimed, and the sacraments that he instituted need to be administered. And so Christ institutes this office through which he might have his word and his sacraments be distributed to the church. That's the reason for the office of the ministry, and the reason then why the scriptures give various qualifications for men to be called into that ministry, and that ministry is in service to the church, and the church and the ministry really exist as in symbiotic fashion, but as one organic whole. You can't have the ministry without the church or the church without the ministry. In fact, that's one of the interesting parts of and we're seeing this as we go through some of the parables in the men's study on Monday nights, that as Jesus is instructing his original disciples, the twelve, we see that this is simultaneously the church and the ministry. And so any number of texts can be read with an eye toward both. On the one hand, these men are disciples in the sense that they're the church, And in another sense, they're going to turn and be office bearers, proclaiming the word and administering the sacraments. And so you can get a very different flavor sometimes on the text, depending on just which emphasis or which lens you're looking at the text through. We also have this guarantee and promise, that as Christ says to his apostles, whoever hears you, hears me, that we can truly believe that where the word of God is rightly preached and the sacraments rightly administered, it's no mere ministry of men that is at work in our midst, but rather the ministry of the risen and living Christ himself. So, wonderful, precious gifts given to us, and these gifts, again, accessible only by faith. The gifts exist objectively, but you have to believe If you go about this business business with your eyes, you're just going to see another sinner 
a sinful man in this office. You're going to see the church and the church's bureaucracy and all the ugly ways that sausage is sometimes made and all the all-too-human elements of the process of call and ordination and call committees and placing a man. But when we cue into the Word of God and let our faith hold on to that, it's a wonderful, miraculous thing that's taking place in our midst and a fantastic gift that Christ gives to us. So, I simply want to reiterate those things as we go into the conclusion of this chapter. Let's take a look at uh, question 27, which will then, from our 40,000-foot view, take us all the way down to ground level, and a very specific and particular question uh, relative to Chemnitz's own time and place. While we might have some parallels to this, nothing quite identical to what he's describing here. Question 27 reads, But whence does the right of patronage originate, and how far does it extend? Here's the answer in which we'll learn what we can of patronage. That right has its origin in this, that some pious people gave certain returns and assessments of their goods to parishes to take care of church functions, And they reserve for themselves this right that with their consent the profit of those returns be given to suitable persons. But that right did not extend so far that it was left free to the patron to put at the head of the ministries of the parishes whomever they wished without the judgment and consent of the church in that place. Okay, I can give you a few historical tidbits that might be of some interest in this context. One is that Chrysostom has a complaint. Uh, He's um, like a 4th century church father. Uh, He has a complaint, but part of the complaint is the data that by and large the ministry of, of that time was funded by wealthy benefactors. So you can see different ways in which churches have funded the ministry. And we can think also then of uh, what sometimes occurs in small congregations, be they LCMS or not, where occasionally there's one very wealthy patron or head of a household who more or less funds everything. And so you can see how that might lend itself to certain abuses. If uh, he, who, he who pays the fiddler calls the tune, or how does that go? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. So that's, that's the kind of arrangement that's in view here. Let's continue on with what Chemnitz has to say. But because... Excuse me, let me back up just to make sure I've got us. But that right did not extend so far that it was left free to the patron to put at the head of the ministries of the parishes whomever they wished without the judgment and consent of the church of that place. But because the parochial returns flow from the patrons, it, that is the church, therefore either presents and sets before the patron of the church some suitable person and requests that the profit of those returns be conferred on him, or the patron himself nominates and presents to the church some person equipped with necessary gifts, uh, 
but always with both the judgment of the ministry and the consent of the rest of the church, preserved and free. And if you just put a finger there, this is really why it's worth our attention, this article, because again, we see this twofold approval that is required, that of the ministerium and that of the congregation or the church to which the man is. So in our parlance, we simply call the approval of the, minutes of the ministerium ordination and the approval of the church the call. And these two things, call and ordination, can be wrapped up into simply the language of call. The assumption being that an ordination has taken place. Does that make sense? Okay. So we see those things, the approval of the ministerium and the approval of the church from the first generation of apostles all the way through church history to the very present. Those are the two most important ingredients. Okay. And then just to finish out Chemnitz's answer, and in this way the call remains Nonetheless, that of the church, and that old canon is observed, let no one be given to the unwilling. Or, yeah, so that is to say a uh, pastor should not be foisted upon people who don't want him to serve. What about in the course of the ministry if people say, maybe this guy speaks a little too much truth? And we don't want him to serve. (laughs) Okay, we'll address that scenario uh, coming up. Let's pause there, see if you have any questions or comments about uh, 27 or anything related. Good? Um, Please. I I was going to ask, I thought this question was going towards the influence one or the rich might have on the calling of a pastor. And you, if that's the case, then what you're saying is then there's a check and balance. There's a twofold uh, approval that's necessary. Is that what brings that into balance? Or? Yes, I think so. If I'm reading Chemnitz correctly, he's saying um, because in this case, the patron or the benefactor has the purse strings. And so you can't exactly go and just foist this upon the patron because the patron might say no and then you're all shipwrecked. You know, what are you going to do? So to this practical dilemma, Kenneth either seems to pose two different equally acceptable solutions that the patron would propose someone and that needs to be received by the approval of the church and ministerium. Or the church and ministerium might present someone suitable to the patron, and the patron could say, yes, sure, I'm going to allow that my monies to go in support of this man and his ministry. So you have a practical problem being dealt with according to these theological principles. Yeah, I've heard it said that, you know, certain pastors don't want to know who gives what in terms of money, so they're, they have no bias or, or treatment. And comment on that, and then also uh, this concept of designated gifts, someone giving a summons as well, I want these gifts to go for this purpose. Uh, That's a form of an influential benefactor then too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to the latter point, 
um, most churches have this written in somewhere, I know we do, and that's that any gifts must be received by the church council so that a gift can't just be given and that influence achieved without the council saying, no, this is on the up and up and this is a good and good bona fide gift and we will re- officially and formally receive it because otherwise someone could very easily throw their money around and gain all sorts of influence and power and that kind of thing. Um, to your first point, yeah, I think it's generally a good pastoral practice to not be nosy about who gives what. It's, there's very little practical value over that. I, maybe the only practical value is if somebody's giving health, healthily and then that suddenly drops off, that might be a symptom of some deeper thing going on. So I know some pastors will rarely, but from time to time, just make sure that's okay. Or tell the financial secretary, if there's any major changes, I want to know about it so I can see if there's a problem I need to address. There's different ways of handling that. Um, My own personal take is I'm very hands-off on that. I don't ever look or pay attention. I have been around the church long enough to know that in terms of giving, uh, the widow's might is alive and well. Uh, there are people that, you know, obviously you get a, if you spend any amount of time with people, you get a sense for how much, generally speaking, how much wealth they have, you know, or at least how they, what they show. And um, uh, just a general kind of thing, it's, it's often the case in the church that those you would think are giving the most often aren't. And those who you would think don't have two pennies to rub together are often giving the most, or at least that is cleared up if you think of it in terms of proportion or percentage. So um, that's why I say the widow's might is alive and well. And, uh, you know, again, maybe just to leave off that tangent with the biblical admonition that God loves a cheerful giver. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul instructs the church um, not toward any level or measurement or even percentage per se. A tithe is always a good benchmark, but it's not a New Testament law. Um, But to give sacrificially as Christ has given to us. And that's the beautiful, glorious template that, that Paul gives us, is that Christ, who was rich for our sakes, became poor. And so as we think about pouring ourselves out uh, for the good of others, thus giving becomes a fundamentally Christological or Christocentric act. And part of who we are as little Christ, as Christians, to give sacrificially after the template of Christ who was rich and became poor and gave all he had for our sakes. So um, let that then sort of be the, the governing thing there in your heart. Yes, I see a hand up up front here. Uh, Just a comment on our situation here. Uh, About 25 years ago, we stopped having tithing programs and tithing sermons and all of that stuff, and we've been much better off ever since. (laughs) (laughs) Really, we have more money. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of psychology there and some spirituality too. Of course, if you if you if you tell if you're begging for money all the time, then it gives the impression that you're failing, and nobody wants to give to a failing organization. You know, I don't know. We can again, we can steer clear all the psychology and marketing and nonsense if we just 
follow that beautiful wisdom and admonition of, of St. Paul. And then, and then we, we can talk about giving without preaching sermons that say that guilt people and say, hey, you need to give more. Here's a stewardship campaign. What are you going to pledge today? Or that kind of thing. We can avoid all that if we simply set our attention on Christ via St. Paul and his sacrificial giving and look at our lives as Christians in terms of our offering the way we look at it in terms of all other vocations and aspects of our life, that we want to be conformed into the image of Jesus and, uh, and have the generosity of heart that he has in whatever small form it has given unto us and express that likewise. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a better way. <laughs> Glad the facts bear me out. Yeah, please. Uh, in our experience, too, we once belonged to a congregation, and this is written reference to the balancing of ordination and the call. Mm-hmm. In the congregation, we were concerned about uh, the pastor's doctrines and what he was preaching. So the synod sent out a representative and examined the co- comments from the congregation, examined the pastor and everything, and decided that this pastor needed to be re-educated. Mm, good, yeah. Well, it's important what the congregation does. Sometimes we do, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes we do. We all kind of... Uh, I, what, what you actually see here in Chemnitz and in the occasion for writing this book is you see an almost a program of continuing it, don't you? That there would be regular testing and a need to regularly study these doctrines on the part of the ministry. We all kind of lament that there isn't something like that. Uh, there is continuing ed, but there's no carrot or stick, shall we say. <laughs> and so very few participate in it. But it does, I think this too. I think, I think any, any Christian sitting in a pew or listening to a class can tell in pretty short order if a pastor is keeping up with his studies or if he maybe hasn't read a book in the last decade. Probably be able to figure that out pretty quick. Uh, theology is a perishable skill or a perishable habitus, and if you don't use it, you lose it pretty darn quick, and that that's probably evident. So uh, maybe then just tangentially to make this comment, one thing you don't want to do, um, and I really say this Christian to Christian, royal priest to royal priest here, but one thing you don't want to do is base your giving on the performance of the pastor or the congregation or the leadership in the congregation. Because then what is your offering? Is it a free will offering of thanksgiving to God? No. It's a manipulative tool. And all you've done is cheated yourself there, right? So, you know, that, this is just, again, royal priest to royal priest. I give whether I'm happy with the pastor or happy with the leadership or happy with the church or not. Why? Because that's my offering to God. It has, that has nothing to do with my relationship to the ministry or the leadership or the church in that particular place. If there's work to be done, I want to do that work. I want to engage those folks and try to help them along. Or maybe, if, maybe I'm the one that needs helped and corrected, and that's fine too. But that's how I want to do that. Meanwhile, my offering is not going to be used by me as a manipulative tool or as a leverage uh, in any way, shape, or form. That denudes it of what it is and, and really undermines the very essence of what an offering is. That's a sacrifice made unto God uh, for 
uh, uh, yeah, unto him as thanksgiving. And if it happens to benefit uh, the church and ministry in a place, wonderful, wonderful. But that's not my business, so to speak. What happens to it after it goes on the plate isn't my business. And if I'm trying to hold on to that or manipulate that or pull strings with that, then it's not really an offering. It's something else. It's a transaction. And so, yeah, steer clear of all that in your heart and your mind, and you'll be a lot more of a cheerful giver. (laughs) Okay, let's take a look at question 28 down at the bottom of uh, 35. Does the church have free power to call to the ministry whomever it wishes? I bet you can already answer this. Here's the answer Chemnitz gives. The Lord of the harvest has prescribed a certain form and rule through his apostles, which is, as it were, a kind of heavenly instruction as to what kind of people they should be, both in doctrine as well as in conduct or life, who are to be chosen and called for the church ministries. And then references are given here to Titus and to Timothy. These are the qualifications laid down in those texts. And the church should recognize in the fear of God that this norm or instruction is to be followed if it wants a call both to be called divine and to be divine. Okay, so in other words, no, the church must call those men whom the scriptures themselves say are qualified. If they're qualified, can the church make a decision? Yes, they can. And the church can, indeed, in her freedom, look at that as a matter of stewardship. And so here's a man who seems to have certain gifts or abilities, or maybe he's at a certain stage in his own life cycle where he's got more energy or more maturity. Unfortunately, he can't really have both. (laughs) Um, The church can try to match her needs with the abilities of a man to some extent. But just keep in mind that that can be overdone. And it can be done in a way too pragmatic fashion. Like, we have to get the guy who's the perfect fit. Okay, well, no. You need a qualified man, and then Christ will do the rest. And just as in marriage, day one after you're married, husband and wife... Uh, aren't magically united and perfect in every way, they are going to engage in a process of marriage whereby hopefully they grow together and um, they increase in their understanding and care for one another. And I think there's an analogy there with the pastoral office, that a congregation and a pastor ideally are growing together, both influencing the other in a positive way. And so, in other words, a, a, a good or a perfect pastor, let's just use that language, even though, there, of course, there's no perfect, but like a perfect pastor isn't born, he's made. And he's made by that congregation for that congregation. Okay, so that's um, also needs to be in view when the when the church goes to call. We need to have faith in Christ. We need to receive whom He gives, and then we need to work with that man and fashion him into the pastor we need him to be, even while he fashions us in accord with God's word and sacraments. So that's the symbiosis there. All right, questions or comments on on twenty eight make sense. Yeah, God gives to us way more than the employer-employee relationship. 
and pastor and church. It's a familial relationship, or at least that would be a much closer analogy. Okay, question 29. If a legitimate call consists in the things that have been said so far, what then does the public right of ordination confer? This is a fascinating question and one that is somewhat controversial within the Lutheran tradition, but even preceding the Lutheran tradition to some extent. What is actually being conferred by ordination or by the act of the laying on of hands? And we'll get there next. One extreme view to just have in your mind would be the view of Rome that comes along, of course, later in the church's history. And that is that when hands are laid upon a man and he receives ordination, that is a sacramental gift that changes that man's ontology. He is no longer a mere Christian. He is now a priest, or we might use the language of pastor, and that changes his ontology. Now, he can do things not by authorization, but by uh, ability, by power. He can do things that he couldn't formerly do. For example, he can, in reciting the words of institution, affect the real presence of Christ's body and blood. So this is called the indelible character, and it's where you get that sloganized as once a priest, always a priest. And of course, we're talking here not about the royal priest, but one in the pastoral office. Okay, So does, in fact, a man receive an indelible character? Does his ontology change? The Lutherans are universal in saying no, and in saying this is a brand new theology. And this does not go back through the history of the church, and certainly can't be found in the scriptures themselves. Okay, so then what is conferred by ordination and the laying on of hands? Let's let Chemnitz answer, and then we'll reflect on it ourselves. He writes, this right is R-I-T-E, this right is to be observed for very weighty reasons. The first reason is that because of those who run and have not been sent, a call ought to have the public testimony of the church. Okay, this harkens back to the earliest pages of this section where you have this perennial problem of people just deciding, I'm going to be a pastor or I'm going to be a pastor in this place and causing problems. So in the first place... Ordination uh, is necessary to preclude uh, that kind of thing. Kenwitz continues, But that ceremony or rite, again R-I-T-E for those listening online, of ordination is nothing else than the kind of public testimony by which the call of that person who is ordained is declared before God and in his name to be regular, pious, legitimate, and divine. Second, by that right, as by a public designation or declaration, the ministry is committed in the name of God and of the church to him who has been called. 
Okay, so what do we see if we were to summarize points one and two? We would largely see an argument made on the basis of right order, that everything would be done in an orderly, proper, public, and correct way. Okay, let's move on to the third. By this very thing also, as by a solemn vow, he who has been called becomes obligated to the church in the sight of God to render the faithfulness in the ministry that the Lord requires in his stewards, regarding which he will also judge them. 1 Corinthians 4.2. Okay, so the other thing that's taking place in the public right of ordination is the man is vowing a solemn vow. Fourth, the church is reminded that it is to recognize that this pastor has divine authority to teach and to hear him in the name and place of God. Okay. Or in the stead and by the command of, to use our language. But there is a divine authority conferred upon a specific man. And I know that's scandalous to us as Americans because we don't like authority. We're not used to seeing our pastors that way. But it is a fact made evident by the ordination rite itself. All right, fifth. And this is most important, Chemnitz writes. That rite, R-I-T-E, is to be observed for this reason, that the whole church might, by common and earnest prayers, commit to God the ministry of him who is called, that he, capital H, by his Holy Spirit, divine grace and blessing might be with his ministry. Okay, so the fifth reason then to keep the public rite of ordination is because it's an opportunity for prayer to pray for the man who is being placed into the office. So there's every reason then, according to Chemnitz, to keep the public right of ordination, even though we're not going to be putting on any uh, conferring of a different ontology, some sort of indelible character by which a man is forever marked as, a, as one who holds the office. Uh, that's simply not the case. Okay, um, any questions or comments there on 29? I see a hand all the way in the back. Sorry to make you exercise this morning. The, uh, the fourth part of question 29, um, to hear him in the name and place of God, um, I guess an obvious thing that comes up there is how does that compare to um, the concept of infallibility in the Catholic Church or the Church of Rome with the Pope? And um, if one is in the place of God, it kind of invites that comparison, I suppose, in my mind. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah, it's a great question. Papal infallibility is really kind of a twisting or perversion of this principle. And as is often the case, we throw out the baby with the bathwater. So if we reject the papacy, then we tend, have a tendency to reject the idea that 
a man placed by God in the office has divine authority and should be obeyed as if it were God himself speaking. Okay. And again, I mean, I can, I, I'm astonished at the words coming out of my mouth because I, too, am an American. <laughs> we, don't, we don't like authority. We distrust it, and we distrust men with authority. But those biases within us should be recognized, and we should strive, not with any naivete and not with any uh, questioning that men are, in fact, uh, corrupt by nature, but we should strive nonetheless to view what the scriptures say and hold to what the scriptures say. So to return to the Pope very briefly, uh, his, and this is often misunderstood by those outside the Roman communion, we want to get this right, papal infallibility is really actually very narrowly defined. That's when the Pope is speaking ex cathedra, that's from the seat or from the chair of St. Peter, then and only then is he said to be infallible. So papal pronouncements, and it tends to not be something that he thought up in the water closet the night before. Okay? In other words, it tends to be vetted and agreed upon by the people who matter most ahead of time before it's actually then given ex cathedra and becomes formal infallible teaching. Okay. I mean, you may think sometimes by the doctrinal result that it was thought up in the water closet. <laughs> but that's, that's not usually how business is done. Okay, so it's narrowly defined there. I think similarly, we might narrowly define it in this respect, that the man who holds this authority, to use Chemnitz language, to be in the name of and in the place of God, he needs to be speaking God's word and or executing God's word, right? So this isn't like Rhodey determined that the new carpet needs to be blue. Thus saith the Lord. That's not, that's not what's in view here, okay? It's not a blank check. But rather than when a man rightly called is dealing with us in, according to God's, in accordance with God's word, whether we like it or not, that is as if God himself were dealing directly. That's the point. And if, we, and if we don't like that, if we choose to think of it in a different way, it doesn't change the fact. And when one goes before his maker at the end of his life, God's going to say to you, let's say in this hypothetical, I told you to your face. Lord, when did you tell me to my face? Did not the servant that I called and ordained and placed in your congregation say this to your face? Why did you not believe him? Did you not hear my words? Whoever hears you, in this case hears him, hears me. So again, we, we want to have that view that where the ministers of Christ who are rightly called and ordained, rightly in office, deal with us in accordance with God's word, it is as sure and certain as if God himself were dealing with us directly. Now, that cuts two ways. That cuts not only in the way of the call of repentance or the application of discipline, but also it works in the absolution, in the free forgiveness of sins, and in all the gifts and benefits thereof. So that to kind of reverse 
the theme or thrust of the hypothetical. Imagine that you're before God, before your maker at the end of your life, and he were to say, I don't think he's going to say this, okay? But he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? You would be well within your rights, and I would, again, encourage some humility here, but you would be well within your rights to say, well, because you forgave my sins to my face. And when did I forgive your sins to your face? Well, you did so when the man whom you called and ordained and sent to be in your stead and by the command forgave me all my sins. And as you have said, whoever hears you, in this case him, hears me, then I heard you face to face say to me that my sins are forgiven. And that's why you should let me into heaven. (laughs) Okay, so the hypothetical here, even if it's a bit preposterous, illustrates the point that that this cuts also, this cuts both ways. Um, either way to our benefit, because even discipline or chastisement or a call to repentance works toward our salvation. But so obviously and manifestly does the absolution and the bestowal of all God's gifts. So these two things work together singularly for the purposes of God to bring a man to salvation and not just to salvation, but to conform him ever more into the image of Christ that his eternal glory might be ever more weighty. Does that kind of help? Okay. Very good. All right, so then that would take us to, um, looks like question 30. Is that right? Okay. Whence is the right of laying on of hands taken, and what does it mean? Okay, so if, you, if it's been a long time, we still do this right, and it's the right of ordination. So usually, in our case, the man is coming out of seminary. He's gone through all the hoops that are necessary there, all the checks and balances and everything else. And he's going to be ordained in a congregation. Many times the pastors of that locale, including if they're available in any of the ecclesiastical hierarchs, are going to lay their hands upon the man's head. And and, uh, that's part of the rite of ordination. Sometimes we even have this custom where they read a Bible verse. I can tell you one thing, it's really uh, all those hands collectively on your head is surprisingly heavy. <laughs> I remember that very distinctly. Okay, so what is, this, what is this right and what does it mean? Chemnitz answers, The right of laying on of hands was common in the Old Testament when something was to be put solemnly in the sight of God, as it were, and committed to him in a special way. There's a number of biblical references. And since public functions were at times entrusted to certain persons by laying on of hands, again, reference to Numbers 27 and Deuteronomy 3 and 34, therefore the apostles in the ordination of ministers out of Christian liberty, retained and used that common right as a thing indifferent and helpful in teaching many things. How can it be indifferent and helpful? Well, because indifferent here is the technical language of adiaphora. That is, it could be omitted without effect. Okay? But it is a helpful right because it is a visual representation of the approval of the ministerium and of the solemnity of what's taking place. Does that make sense? So could someone be ordained without the laying on of hands? Yes. It's not a necessary 
aspect or element of the right. But why do we retain it? Precisely because it's a good biblical right or uh, practice that shows forth the, the reality that's taking place underneath, that of the approval of the ministerium. And this biblical nature and the solemnity of the occasion. Okay, so let's go just a little further then. Um, he has references to Acts 6, 1 Timothy 4 and 5, and 2 Timothy 1. And then he continues, And thus also the ancient church observed the act of ordination without anointing and without other superstitions, simply with laying on of hands. Therefore, we also in our churches observe the same rite. For through laying on of hands, the person called is set before God, as it were, so that there might be a public and outward testimony that the call is not only a human matter, but that God himself calls, sends, and appoints that person for the ministry, though by regular and legitimate means. Moreover, by this solemn act, he that is to be ordained is obligated and, as it were, consecrated to Christ for the ministry. Okay, so kind of implied here, and this is exactly right, is that you're also, you continue to be beholden to the ministerium to remain faithful in your office. And it is your brothers in Christ, and brothers in office, who will hold you accountable and who are very likely to be the ones to call you out if you've really gone astray. So that's implied here as well. Chemnitz continues, Besides, by that right, as in the sight of God, the church is entrusted to the minister, and on the other hand, the minister to the church. There's, that's what I mean by symbiosis or a symbiotic relationship. Chemnitz continues, Through whose ministry, namely, God wants to teach, exhort, and administer the sacraments and work effectively in us. But the laying on of hands in ordination is observed chiefly because of the common prayers of the church, that they may be made with greater diligence and warmer desire. This is the second place then in two questions that Chemnitz has brought up prayer and the importance of prayer throughout this process. So I simply want to point that out. And by the way, ongoing. We should pray for our pastors. We should pray for our leaders in the state. We should pray also for our leaders in the church. We, you know, If things are going poorly in the leadership, we, the first thing that ought to come to mind is to pray for them and on their behalf and benefit. That's the most valuable thing we can possibly do. All right, Chemnitz continues, For it is, as it were, a public reminder of the difficulty of the ministry, which cannot be made able except by God. 2 Corinthians 3. Therefore, that minister is presented to the Lord of the harvest through laying on of hands, and the church reminded of the institution of the ministry and of the divine promises attached to it reminds God of his promises 
and asks that by their power he would graciously be with the present minister, with his uh, spirit, this is God's spirit, grace, blessing, efficacy, working, governance, and direction. (coughs) Excuse me. And Paul and Moses testify that these prayers of the church are not in vain. Biblical reference is given. And thus the act of ordination publicly shows forth the whole doctrine of the call of ministers and sets it, as it were, before one's eyes. All right, very good. So much is communicated by the laying on of hands. And summarily, let me kind of zoom out and say, okay, ordination, we've viewed some of the errors with ordination, laying on of hands, we've viewed some of the errors, we've stated positively what these two things are. And I would say that elsewhere in Scripture, we want to, well, the Scriptures plainly say, and so we want to acknowledge that in God giving us pastors, which every single Christian has a pastor, In God giving us pastors, God is giving his church wonderful gifts. And so just the idea that, I mean, let me say it this way. Whereas indelible character is wrong and a wrong way of thinking about it, it is nonetheless a fact that God creates men to be pastors. and, And so to him goes the credit, right? And I would also say that at the time of ordination and at the time in which a man enters a call, that God continues and does so throughout his whole ministry, bestow ability and gifts upon that man. Again, because it's not to any man's credit, and it would be foolish to think that. So that might be, if you will, the other side of the coin. While God isn't doing an indelible character type of deal, he is nonetheless conferring gifts to a man for the benefit of his church. Does that make sense? Hopefully I made that clear. Okay. All right. Any questions or comments on on those two? Okay. I see one up front here. So what does a seminary do uh, for somebody that wants to become a pastor? Besides passing all the classes and graduated, how can the seminary determine that this is going to be a good pastor for you know, their congregation? Devil can come in and graduate and then go out there and you know, screw the mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's sometimes said, now don't take this too far, but that even in the seminary class, the class of men that our Lord himself taught, one of them was a traitor. Okay? So that is to say, you can't, no institution within the church can perfectly weed out all men who might have ill intent or who might have the best of intentions, but somewhere along the line get twisted or perverted in their doctrine or life. Um. I think it just helps us to think this way, even if it's a little deconstructionistic. There is nothing in Scripture that says you have to go to seminary. Okay. What you have to have is the approval of the ministerium and the divine call and approval of the congregation that you're going to serve, so the church and the ministry. 
Now, what's the, what's the mechanism by which you gain, first and foremost, the approval of the ministerium? That could be done in any number of ways, frankly. In, if if we, we were imagining some post-apocalyptic wasteland, okay. no, this is a fun pastime for all of us, it might be the case that um, you know, a man would want to become a pastor, so he would simply shadow a pastor, study under a pastor for any number of years, and then be presented to the circuit or locale of pastors in fellowship, pass an examination, even if it was just a matter of their questioning, and be approved for the office of the ministry. Okay, That would be another way to skin the cat. In our system here in America, with, with all of our resources and, and blessings, the approval of the ministerium has taken on the form of a formal seminary education with a number of different, uh, like I said, filters or hoops you have to jump through. I mean, you have to have an initial approval by your congregational pastor. You have to be interviewed and receive an approval by the district even to go to seminary. Then as you go to seminary, there are a number of psychological and personal evaluations. Plus, people get to exhibit your mode and manner of life for four years to see if you're going to teach the right doctrine and um, and that's really what the passing of the classes is. Have you been able to retain the right doctrines? Do you have skills and aptitude to preach and be by somebody's hospital bed, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? Okay, and so um, psychological evaluations, a final theological evaluation. Your vicarage, in many cases, is a major filter because you're working day in and day out with a pastor who's going to notice if you're, you know, kind of a weirdo or... Um, <laughs> apt to teach false doctrine or not equipped to teach, period, or something like this, right? And so vicarage can be one such filter. By the time you get through all that formally, the faculty at the seminary all has to approve you graduating with an MDiv, a Master of Divinity uh, degree. And anyone can stand up and stand against and make a case against you, okay? Assuming you pass all of that, then the district president looks it over and says, yes, we approve, and we approve of him receiving a call here. And that's why then the circuit brothers, when a church calls a man from the seminary and he shows up there, the circuit brothers all show up and lay their hands on. Why? We all know that he's gone through this process that we all trust insofar as we can trust it. Now, I'd submit to you that that's probably among the best in the nation, if not the world, in terms of that. I know that that's what maybe sounds a little pompous, but in terms of doing due diligence to filter men out, it sure as heck beats, hey, I think I'm going to be a pastor today. So we have a very good system in place, and I would encourage that traditional route and men to take that traditional route for their own good and for the good of the church. That All that being said, can... Um, miscreants and villains still get through? Yes. Can good men who got through become miscreants and villains somewhere along the way? Yes. And that's an unfortunate reality in a fallen world. Again, just to emphasize Chemnitz's point, that's where prayer is so important because it's God who creates and sustains all good things within his church, protects us from fierce wolves. Remember, St. Paul even warns the pastors in the book of Acts that upon his death, upon his departure, many fierce wolves would infiltrate the flocks of these men and attack and seek to devour 
divide and destroy those congregations. So uh, there too you see that pastors, while needing in some respects to be gentle, also need to be able to defend the flock from wolves. They need to be able to identify wolves and be willing to combat the wolves. In our day and age, uh, pastoral as a kind of adjective has really been just completely gutted and replaced with the word nice. God is probably not nice, (laughs) in fact. And you don't really want a pastor to be nice as his primary sort of characteristic. Because, you know, when you need to be defended from a wolf, do you want Mr. Rogers to show up or Rambo, right? So you, you, you want somebody who's capable of protecting the flock and willing to protect the flock, uh, even willing to lay down his life in protection for the flock. And so you want, and, and again, when we're reflecting on the pastoral office, we're really reflecting on Jesus, aren't we? And Jesus is anything but a milk toast kind of guy. He charges into the temple. He overturns tables. When they come to arrest him, he speaks and knocks them all on their keisters and backs. He is completely um, humble and respectful of Pilate, and yet completely unjarred by him or his authority of the circumstances, but just talks to him man to man. And so in all aspects, you can see our Lord, this beautiful masculinity of an ability to have tenderness and compassion, to be lowly of heart, to look on the downtrodden and despised and stand up for the weak and care for the weak whom everybody else is ignoring. But you also see the other side of masculinity, that strength and that boldness and that willingness to uh, stand one's ground and not compromise regardless of the cost. And so in Jesus, we see the, the fullness of man, generally speaking, of masculinity, more narrowly speaking, and then we see the true template for what we want in our pastors, is we want our pastors to be um, not only gentle and nurturing when it calls for that, but also to be fierce warriors when it calls for that. And so recovering the masculinity of the pastoral office is probably a pretty important project this day and age. Okay, um, was there, were there any other questions or comments? Okay. All right, we've got just a couple minutes left. Let's see if we can knock out uh, paragraph. No, we're not going to. It just, it just ticked to 59, so that's going to be it for today. Let's pick up next week at um, page 37, question 31, that paragraph. And as you can see, we've just got half a page here and roughly half a page on the following, and then we'll be done and we'll be off into the word and sacraments. The Lord be with you.